Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Across the UK, online and on DAB Digital Radio. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others on TalkSport 2. All the action, excitement and drama from across the entire women's game. Nikita Paris is running into the air, it's still Nikita Paris left-footed. World-beating, big match conversation on the station that's raising the game for women's football. We're loving it, we're absolutely loving it, it's brilliant. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others on TalkSport 2. Hello and welcome to this Women's Football Weekly special. I'm Faker Others and over the next hour we'll be asking what is the future of women's football? Where's it heading? What challenges does it face? And what needs to be done to keep it growing? Lewis FC General Manager Maggie Murphy is with you and women's football reporter for The Telegraph, Katie Wyatt. We'll also hear from a leading sports lawyer and the chief women's officer from Global Players Union, FIFPRO. So much to talk about. Venues, contracts, finance, leagues, facilities, sponsorships and more. And of course we can't do it without hearing from you. Tell us what you think needs to improve in women's football. Get involved and tweet us your opinions throughout the show at TalkSport2. Across the UK, online and on DAB Digital Radio. Hi, I'm Gemma Bonnet and you're listening to Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport2. Hello, hello. So last week we focused on the growth of women's football over the past decade in particular. And now we're looking to the future of the game. There's been a heck of a lot of progress, but what else needs to be done? Joining us this evening to discuss this, Maggie Murphy, Lewis FC General Manager, Katie Wyatt, women's football reporter for The Daily Telegraph as well. How are you both? Doing well. Thank you, Faye, for having us on. All right, thank you, Fia. Excellent. Good to have you both. Big question first to ask you. It's a bit more difficult as well, um, bearing in mind the uncertainty surrounding COVID-19. I'll start with you first, Maggie. How optimistic are you about the future? I mean, in in general, you know, we've seen such uh, growth in the last uh, couple of years. You know, we've got bigger audiences, bigger level of interest. I think, you know, the World Cup... Uh, and the increased visibility around the WSL this year has really helped legitimise women's football in the eyes of kind of the viewers and the fans, which now needs to be backed up, I guess, by uh, sponsors and broadcasters a little bit more. Um, so in general, there's a, a proper, it's an area for growth and opportunity. So it's a place that clubs really should be investing in uh, for the future because that's where, you know, there's money to be made in a way. So I think it's it's in a great position pre-COVID, um, 
and now it's just, you know, how will we react to COVID and, and what will we do as a result to try to make sure that we don't lose any of those gains and in fact carry on growing? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. It has to just almost take off from where it where it was going originally. Katie, same question to you. How optimistic are you about the future? Um, yeah, I'm always a little bit 75% positive, 25% um, anxious in general with women's <laughs> football. I think that's maybe exacerbated a little bit with coronavirus. Um, I think everything that Maggie said is, is spot on about the England team in particular legitimising women's football. I think the issue is the f- longer that we get and the further that we get down the line with the growth of women's football, there are certain sacrifices that are made. So we've seen Notts County, for example, and what's happened historically with clubs like Charlton and things. And it's it's those sort of stories and the choice about and the balance between um whether women's teams are bankrolled by men's teams or if they're sustainable in their own right and all the shortcomings that come with that. So clubs that have to cut corners because they don't fund the women's team properly and things. So I think that with growth, you also have these little caveats and stumbling blocks along the way as the sport sort of works out its identity and where it wants to be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of established, been establishing its identity. And, you know, this is, I mean, it's not come as a, a good time for anybody, has it? Uh, coronavirus, a global can- pandemic is, is not what any of us planned for. But it's going to be interesting to see how women's football deals with it. And, you know, you both mentioned sponsors and, and broadcasters and how that positivity can continue. Uh, we will speak to uh, Chief Women's Officer at uh, FIFPRO shortly, um, but they launched a Raising Our Game report to try and improve women's football. What, what do you think? You've mentioned a few things there, Maggie, but what do you think are the biggest things that the game has to focus on? Yeah, I do think we're coming out a bit of a, a fork in the road, you could say, when it comes to, to women's football. Um, everything that Katie said about, you know, trying to ensure that women's football can stand on its own feet is really, really important and really valid. Um, it's something that we work really hard on here at Lewis because obviously many of your listeners might not have even heard of us. Um, we don't have a big men's club that, that provides us with that backing. So things like match day experience and getting, uh, you know, the crowds in and getting them spending money in our facilities, all of that is really, really important. Um, but you know, with the global pandemic coming in, you know, those kinds of things are suddenly under threat if we have to play behind closed doors and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of like, what kind of future do we want for women's football? Uh, where, where do we want to go on, on this journey? Um, and how do we make sure that the investment doesn't go? There's, there's plenty of other little bits and pieces around investment. You know, Lewis has been quite vocal on things like equalising the FA Cup prize money, which if, if that was done, there would be immediately a lot more incentive for teams to be investing in the women's football um, because they've got a chance to win a lot more money than they currently do. So, you know, there's little tweaks and little decisions um, that come up that, you know, I think we could we, we could make good choices to make sure that we protect that, that future. Yeah, good choices indeed. Let me bring in Amanda van der Voort, Chief Women's Officer at Global Players Union at FIFPRO. Good to have you with us, Amanda. Um, I hope you're well. We've just been discussing your Raising Our Game report. Um, I was just asking Maggie what she believed the biggest thing the game needs to focus on, but bearing in mind all the reports that you've done recently, what would you say your findings have, have shown is the main thing that the game has to focus on for improvement in the future? Wow. Well, that's uh, first, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. And I love uh, tuning in and, and hearing Maggie's voice uh, coming right at me. So, uh, Mag, it's, um, it's lovely to hear you and, and your thoughts on, on the game as well. And I love the question you just posed, what kind of future, 
you know, do we do we want women's football to have? And I think that's, um, you know, I think that's profound, and that's a really um, thoughtful way to, to think about this time that we're in now and, and the implications and, and impacts of, of coronavirus on, on women's football um, today, but, but for years into the future. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a big question. I think there's a lot of directions you, you could take with it, and ultimately um, bringing together all of the different pieces of the puzzle, like, like you know, Maggie started to describe from, from broadcasters and sponsors to, to having players ultimately at the table and the, the decision-making processes that, that go into to women's football, I think, um, are probably some of the starting points for us to, to really think about. When we dig in on the reports that that Pro's put out, we put out we put out one report called "Raising Our Game," um, but we we didn't publish that until the end of April because we we actually before that published um, COVID nineteen implications for professional women's football, and there's a number of considerations within that 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 we think are absolutely critical for the the community, I guess at large to to really consider. But among them, one of the, one of the findings within our research was that there really is no um, there, there really is no standard for for professional women's football and and finding ways to allow and, and elevate the women's game to be at the the highest level that it possibly can be because you know we would contend that that if if female players can compete at the highest level and, and be supported as professional athletes the to, you know of the highest accord the game will undoubtedly grow as a result of that right so by investing in in the player welfare and the player conditions and 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 encouraging them and helping them be as successful as possible ultimately that'll drive forward all those other aspects of the game that um you know that that maggie and you were were talking about right when i joined the call and and what kind of things uh, do you mean with that what what kind of things can the players um bring to the table that that is so important and how do we facilitate that for them how does the game do that yeah i mean it's uh, there's you know players they play the game they know the game they've they've experienced the the ins and, and outs of of what it takes to to be a footballer and what um you know what the what 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 the game can use is some perspective from them i think i think as well so um specifics regarding playing surfaces or fields or facilities to um you know to, to their own experiences with health and nutrition and and support as it relates to their clubs and their national team environment so it's pretty broad reaching i think when you ask the question how how do we get players involved we have to look at um, at governance structures and at inclusion. How do we actually include women in that conversation, and and female players specifically? So, well, in addition, I would say both need to be considered in this kind of grand grand operating system that that we're talking about here. But but they're critical in in the future of a, a just and sustainable women's football industry into the future. So that this doesn't. This doesn't happen again in this capacity where we're questioning the future of the game. Amanda raises a really interesting point there. Uh, Katie, Katie Wyatt, uh, women's football reporter from The Telegraph, joining us, Amanda. Um, but Katie, what do you think the players can, can bring to the table? I mean, certainly we're seeing a lot more former players now actually at um, a governance level and, and bringing their perspective into the game. What more can we do? 
Um, I think it's a really pivotal thing and it's kind of one of the reasons that the FIPRO reports from the last week have been so pleasing because they've taken into account so many views from players and obviously they have the council, the Global Players Council, that's got a lot of women's footballers, including Lucy Bronze and Anita Asante and people like that on it. And I think they're pivotal because I think that for all people who work in sports governance can have certain views on women's football. I think that the views of those on the ground and the views of the people who are having to balance two jobs or are having to wait so long for surgery or are having to make do with below-par facilities or whatever it is, I think it's really vital that we listen to them because they're the people having these experiences. And I think often in women's football, partly because there is generally a higher level of education in men's than in men's football you have women's players that have degrees or that work dual jobs or have kind of a greater experience of the world and real life if you like but also because they have had to make do with lesser conditions or lesser pay there's a real desire among players to lay a foundation for the next generation and to pass on their expertise so I think that the one thing that really is impressive about women's football is that there's a real willingness among the powers that be to listen to those players experience and a real um, openness among players to share their views as well. Mm, and clubs are certainly taking that on board as well. Maggie Murphy from uh, Lewis FC. Um, you brought Claire Rafferty, um, former Chelsea player, of course, now commercial manager at Chelsea. You brought her onto the board at Lewis. Yeah, in fact, just listening, I was thinking about how important that that was for us. Uh, partly because Claire is, is just so gifted and, and um, has her own set of uh, business development skills that we'd love to tap into, but also because she does have that um, experience. And it's something that we've done here as well. We had four players that we put onto leadership courses actually run by women in football, um, partly to help them think through not really their transition because they're still playing, they're still um, you know young in their career, but partly to help them think through what they can contribute to football maybe once they finish playing. I think a lot of players think that the only way for them to progress is through becoming a coach. And actually, there's so many other roles that they can take, um, that they can lead in. Um, and I'd love to tap into their expertise and, and, and bring them on board in that way as well. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting point. More players at the table for the future of women's football to improve. We've been asking you to send in your thoughts to Women's Football Weekly on Twitter at, at TalkSport2. What do you think needs to improve in women's football. Derek says, for me, extend the two leagues to 14 teams and televise it more, bringing up the point that Maggie made earlier on about sponsors and broadcasters as well. And Sue says stadiums, particularly the state of pitches, need to improve to avoid the cancellations we've had this year. Also, the quality of officiating and training and as well. And it's as if Sue knew exactly what we'd be discussing next, because state of the pitches and stadiums etc. is exactly what we were discussing after this. Across the UK, online and on DAB Digital Radio. Oh, the momentum is with them now. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others. Central Scott scores inside two minutes. On TalkSport 2. This is a Women's Football Weekly special on the future of the women's game with me, Faker Ruthers, The Telegraph's Katie Wyatt, Lewis FC General Manager Maggie Murphy and Amanda van der Voort, Chief Women's Officer at Global Players Union, FIF Pro. You are listening to TalkSport 2. Really interesting discussion in part one regarding more players being at the table to improve the future of women's football. Of course, infrastructure and strategy also crucial to the future of the game. And another FIFA Pro report this year suggested 51% of professional players said there weren't enough staff at their clubs to fulfil their playing needs. Amanda, let me ask you this then. Who's missing and what, what constitutes enough staff? 
Yeah, I mean, you have to, this, this research that we did was a survey of the players. So I think first and foremost to recognize that this is, this is what the players are telling us directly. And um, I think we can break that down a little bit because the specific staff positions that they reported in that is most lacking um, that, I, that I think should be concerning are, are, are physiotherapists, team doctors, assistant coaches. Those are the, most, uh, the top three reported roles when, when you kind of dig into those numbers a bit. So, you know, I think for me the big question is how, how do we expect players to perform at, at the most elite levels when, you know, at the top of their game, when, when they don't have, uh, even in, in their own perspective, the appropriate staff supporting them. Um, in that process. So, I mean, everything from, from proper attention and, and, and physios and doctors to, you know, the underlying feeling of insecurity that, that this could create in a player while not feeling safe or cared for um, in, in her environment. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think um, it's, I think it's critical that, that we, we raise this and start talking about it. What are the support systems and staffing infrastructure that, that are in, in national teams and club setups. And, and keep in mind, this is, this is at the elite level that players are reporting this. Mm. Let's ask Maggie Murphy from Lewis FC then. What, what, what are the support system at Lewis, Maggie? Yeah, well, I think in, in England, we have really clear requirements um, in the championship and, and in WSL. If we don't fulfil them, then we lose our licence. It's, it's as clear as that. So our staffing requirements are things like administrative staff, such as myself. Uh, then you have the technical staff, such as a manager, assistant coaches, goalkeeper coach. Um, and then you have those that are looking at the physical side of things. So a, a physical preparation coach or SNC, um, a physio and a, and a match day doctor. I mean, the requirements are actually very stringent on us and that can actually be quite difficult for us because in order to fulfill some of those requirements um, there's a very small pool of people that you can actually pick from so I think sometimes uh, in order to increase those requirements quite high we, we almost um, make it quite difficult to find a really broad pool of people that might be um, able to come into a team environment. I mean, at Lewis, we also have a team psychologist and we're also um, looking to kind of establish a, a player liaison role, someone that can help us and, you know, with accommodation issues because we also provide accommodation for a number of our players um, and just to help settle them in because a lot of our players actually move to Lewis and want to become part of the community, but that adds a little bit of an extra welfare burden. So neither of those roles are requirements, but we think they're quite important to make sure we treat the players like people first, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, actually, because um, Katie Wyatt, uh, who writes for The Telegraph, who's with us tonight as well, actually wrote an article recently on the FA providing mental health support uh, for England players in, in particular. Um, Amanda van der Voort from, from Fief Pro, are you, are you finding that globally around the game that that's, that's not a provision that other clubs do, but, but actually it's something that the UK are better at? You know, I think that's a really important point that this is a global perspective that the FIFA Pro report really looks at. Um, so it's not going to speak specifically to what's happening here or what's happening in, in other countries. Um, and, and I don't know that, that I um, would be in a position to compare one country to another from a quantitative point of view. But I would say that in conversations I've had with, with, um, with people, with players, here in England, um, they do reference the, the support, the psychological support they've gotten, whether it's through the, the PFA here um, directly or, 
or through other other means like like their clubs. So um, you know, not in a comparison sense, but but I have yeah, I would say that that I've heard really positive feedback about it. Um, that said, I, within the context of coronavirus, we've done another study on mental health of players, and what we found is that in the past six months, we did a study back in December, and we've now done one in April, um, and we've seen twice as many players, twice as many female players reporting um, symptoms of, of depression and, and anxiety. So I think, you know, we need to look at we need to look at the impact of, of coronavirus on players today and, and how our systems and structures are, are supporting them, you know, in their, in their current, their current moment of, 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 of need and in, in the midst of, of this. Yeah, that's certainly going to make a, a huge difference. Um, I know you're a very busy woman and you have a meeting to get to shortly, so I'll, I'll let you go in a moment, but I do just want to talk to you about um, the, the, the report that, hit a lot of headlines certainly over here uh, that FIFA Pro released um, about a month ago where you talked of an existential crisis. I mean, when we're talking mental health and things like that, I know that we obviously have to get this to the fore that, you know, women's football could potentially be in trouble because of um, COVID-19. But is there a worry that that could, you know, cause more mental health issues to people who perhaps, you know, thought things might be okay? Yeah, uh, you know what? In fact, in that mental health study that we did, we found that um, people, players uh, responded, um, uh, that they experienced more symptoms. Those who were concerned about the, the future of, yeah, of, of their industry. And, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's a result of, of, uh, of, of us publishing the report. I, I think, in fact, we've now brought the dialogue to the forefront and to the decision-making tables where, whereby, you know, the leadership in the game can have these conversations with, with women being sat at the table equally um, in the conversations. And I think that's a, a critical component to, to impacting and affecting the future of the women's game, that, that it is funded successfully, that, that the, the sponsors and, um, and, uh, and commercial partners in, in women's football see not only, you know, where we've been, because up until, until this happened, women's football was absolutely on the rise, like, and you guys here in England were absolutely crushing it, smashing it. Um, and I, I don't think we can lose sight of that, right? It's, it's now a question of, of what are some of the tweaks and changes that, that we can do to, to, to elevate the game and, and make sure that that wind, you know, continues in our sails and carries us not just where we thought we were originally going, but exponentially beyond that. And so um, I think... I think this dialogue is, is absolutely critical and important, and and yeah, it it does it does face a threat. But having the conversation now, not in in two years when teams or clubs have failed, or in five years, you know, if things uh, if things go sour, like let's address it now so that that doesn't happen. And that's the critical piece of of this conversation and of um, of FIFA FIFA's public FIFA's publication when we published it to say, listen, we need to talk about women's football today now when we're making the financial decisions not later now absolutely and that's a really crucial point and a really good one to end on with you as well amanda vandervoort chief women's officer at global players union fief pro thank you so much for joining us hopefully we'll chat to you again soon certainly that report did make waves and did make headlines we were running it all over talk sports uh, the talk sport network um katie amanda makes some some really 
interesting and, uh, and crucial points there. Uh, things are starting to, to get to the fore, even if it's from a negative perspective, at least. Yeah, I think it's interesting because having heard and listened to Amanda a few times in the last few weeks in relation to the press briefings that they've done around the um, reports that FIFA have released, I think that there's women's football, and Maggie's kind of alluded to this, is that a really interesting juncture in terms of the opportunities that the crisis presents, uh, as crassly worded as that sounds, and the difficulties that it presents. So as Maggie was saying, this is a real opportunity for um, clubs to think about how they want women's football to be in the future and what they want their manifesto for women's football to look like, because you're kind of not starting from scratch, but there's a real scope to rewrite some of the injustices or the difficulties that women's football is facing. And I think that FIFPRO and their conference calls with the press were saying similar things, that this is a time when they're really challenging clubs to see the shortcomings from the report and the issues of the coronavirus crisis as a chance to step up and do things differently and really lay down their support for women's football at a time when people are looking to cut costs and when the sport's really going to need that support. Yeah, you're listening to Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport 2 and hearing the thoughts of The Telegraph's Katie Wyatt and uh, Lewis FC General Manager uh, Maggie Murphy as well. Um, Katie, just another question to you regarding that. From a coaching point of view, before all this happened, we, we were talking about what the FA are doing to improve things. Obviously, we've had a special here on TalkSport 2 regarding um, Phil Neville's departure from the England setup and who his possible replacement will be and the, the questions over whether it should be a women's coach um, taking over at, at the helm. From a coaching point of view in this country, what are the FA doing to improve things? Um, it's very vague because, I mean, you, I think the big thing that they have to do now is that when Phil Neville was appointed, there was a great deal of scrutiny around the, um, appointment process and the interview process. And a lot of women came forward and spoke out and said that they had vastly, um, superior CVs and a lot more experience than he had, but that they had been overlooked for the job. So I think that one thing that would really restore confidence in that is having um having i guess making it very clear and having the public feeling that there are women who are um very good and have historically been very good in women's football and experienced and qualified who are part of that process and made to feel like they're part of that process um because i know that, that was a big grumble at the time so i think of that they're if they can manage to be transparent and clear about that process and um, open about what the dialogue is and what they're looking for. And I think another thing was that they were, with Mark Sampson and Phil Neville, had outlined certain um, criteria and certain qualifications that they needed for coaches. And you had to have a specific level of licence and you had to have so much experience that neither Mark Sampson or Phil Neville met. So then there was a sort of bending of the rules for them both. And I think that if it sort of sticks to its own guidelines really clearly, and there is a feeling that it really does take the recruitment process stringently and seriously, then that will go a long way to restoring confidence in addition to the things that they are doing to kind of accelerate female coaches through the path of Casey Stoney, who I think, as Phil Neville's assistant, had a really good opportunity to learn international management before she stepped into the Man United women role. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good point there, there Katie. I, I lost you for a tiny second there. Um 
but also um, we'll discuss this further because you know we, we still haven't even got on to pitch problems for facilities what we can expect in the future as well there's there's never enough time to, to cover everything um, but I just want to ask Ma Maggie one final question there was a Guardian article today England women are teaming up with a sports research and nutrition service designed to truly understand the female athlete so can you see technology improving training um, in the future at your club Oh, I mean, definitely, 100%. I think um, it's it's fascinating that there's so little, you know, such little amounts of research that have been done on the, on the female athlete's body, um, whether that's around nutrition or the menstrual cycle, um, injuries, the way that, you know, a lot of people don't realise that our, <laughs> I don't know, in some ways it's obvious, our bodies are built differently, right? Um, and so that means that we... Uh, injure ourselves in different ways because we carry load in, in different ways. Um, and so, you know, that up until now, a lot of the, the research that's been done is focused purely on on, on men's bodies. Um, so it's, it's actually, I mean, it's long overdue, but it's very exciting that now we're having research teams that are dedicated to understanding uh, what kind of conditions make for the best operating environment for female athletes, what kind of nutrition, um, you know, how to change load, uh, you know, training load, during the menstrual cycle um, to make sure that we protect players but also get the, the best out of them as well. So it's a really exciting area. Um, and, and, you know, when it trickles down a little bit further, um, hopefully we'll be able to democratise that a little bit more and, and help, you know, that kind of seep out into the grassroots but also into schools with our, you know, teenage girls as well. I think there's a huge area that, that we can really stand to benefit from going forward. Yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting. Um, right, we've been asking all of you what needs to improve in women's football. You've been hearing the thoughts there from Maggie Murphy uh, from Lewis FC and Katie Wyatt uh, from The Telegraph. Natalie has tweeted in. She says, where do I begin? Equality, but not just in terms of facilities and resources. Treat it the same way. And if players have a bad game, tell them. Moya says, equal efforts from the institutions, sponsors and media. Given equality of effort, I'm sure equality of outcomes would not be far behind, which is very similar uh, to what Maggie was just saying there, although the women's game, of course, does have to be treated in some ways very, very differently. Uh, don't forget, we're now a podcast, so if you have missed any of us on a Monday evening between 6 and 7, don't worry, you can download the Women's Football Weekly podcast on Spotify and Apple products. Uh, next, though, are players' contracts up to scratch? Lawyer Liz Ellen from La Vida Sports will tell us. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Women's Football Weekly with Faye Carruthers. Hi, I'm Leah Williamson from Arsenal Women, and you can follow the WSL on TalkSport 2. The future of women's football is what we're discussing on this Women's Football Weekly special on Talk Sport 2. I'm Faker Rothers. The Telegraph's Katie Wyatt joins me along with Lewis FC General Manager Maggie Murphy. We've just been discussing how this current crisis presents an opportunity for the future. What does the women's game want to look like after this? An opportunity indeed. Contracts and salaries are key to the future of the women's game for sure. More clubs and players, of course, turning professional. And Liz Ellen's sports lawyer and director of La Vida Sports joins us uh, to discuss this. Liz, lovely to have you on. Um, your experience of female player contracts, how, how complicated are they and how much do they need to improve? Oh, I say um, it's an interesting one. I've been, I've been um, helping players with their contracts for the best part of, of 10 years. Um, I've been a director of women football for the last five years. And yet one area that we really don't get asked to advise on very often is women's, women's football and, and the women's contracts. And I think that tells you a lot about the fact that there's not the funding there at the moment to, um, to allow people to, to look to external advisors. But if we, if we look at the standard contract, it's, it's complex. There's a 16-page there's a document. It's, uh, it's full of small print. Um, the, the basic point that will take you through how long your contract lasts which in women's football tends to be a little bit shorter than, than in the men's game, and how much you get paid. Obviously, we know, again, that that is something where there's this big disparity. The rest of the contract is very much about um, how you conduct yourself, the circumstances where you might get paid more, such as bonuses, or the circumstances where you might get paid less, um, in the case of relegation, disciplinary issues, injury, which I, I guess is another crucial issue in women's football. Mm. Um, and also the circumstances when a club can, can cancel your contract um, for, for breach of contract or criminal issues, for example. Um, so there's, there's a lot in there. It, it does largely mirror the issues that you'll find in the men's contracts, but, but obviously um, the crucial differences are around the, the financial aspects. Yeah, it's interesting that you said about injuries there because certainly anecdotally what we've heard from, from players since we launched Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport 2 in September is that the protection for players in terms of, you know, obviously so many ACL injuries in particular, maternity uh, contracts, things like that just are, are overlooked by many clubs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's hard to say that they're... they're Overlooked. I mean, there, there is a standard contract that, that all the, the clubs use for, for their players. And there are provisions in there that relate to, to injury. Um, the, the reason that people feel that they are overlooked is the fact that those provisions are actually um, quite harsh on the players. Um, you could be, um, you could have your, term, your contract terminated on, on three months' notice in the event of, of a long term injury. Um, and that's something that, you know, as football 
fans, I guess, we're not familiar with. We don't see that reflected in the, in the men's game. Um, so there are provisions there, but unfortunately, they're just not very, not very generous. And again, it comes back to um, the, the lack of funding within the game at present. I mean, one thing that I think probably is overlooked um, is, is the mat leave issue. Mm. Um, that, that isn't covered at all in a 16-page document, which you would imagine should be quite a crucial, crucial point, given that it's, uh, it's women within that age range. Um, so I think that's something that, that they will have to look at again. And I think particularly it's, um, it's something that's probably come to everyone's attention much, um, much more over recent months because of uh, the issues around the sponsors, when the sponsors realised that actually their contracts were, were quite unfair on, um, on athletes who were going on maternity leave. So I think it's something that, that will be addressed. Whether or not um, there'll be any particularly favourable provisions, I think, uh, again, depends on, on the future funding of the game. Yeah, funding, it always comes back down to funding, doesn't it? Which is, which is pretty depressing. Um, let's ask Lewis FC General Manager Maggie Murphy her opinion on this. From a club's point of view, Maggie, it, it must be difficult. Obviously, you would like to be able to employ somebody like Liz to, um, to, to look over the contracts, make them as, as good as possible, but funding is an issue. What, what problems have you encountered with regard to contracts? Have you had players push back on current contracts? How, how do you improve them for the future? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many interesting angles to this. And, um, y- you know, the, the discussion about the, the contracts being quite rudimentary is is, is really valid. Um, cause, you know, at the moment, they do focus on the very basics around the money and less on other elements, um, such as medical or maybe education or leadership opportunities or accommodation Um so, so it's a little bit just on the on the cold hard facts of how much money and less on the environment, which you know for us is really important at Lewis because we're trying to provide this enabling environment. I guess um, one thing that I think is maybe of interest is p- players don't. It's not that they don't push back. We have decent conversations with players around a couple of the issues, um, but one thing that I noticed there's not much support or education for players, um, especially at the championship level where they're not covered by the PFA. Um, there's not that much education for them on the role of agents. And I feel like sometimes the agents are interested in in the financial aspects, but maybe don't ask about some of those other things like the medical, like the education opportunities or the dual career options. Um, You know, and and on the, the issue of injury, yeah, completely. I mean, we're very lucky this season. We only had one significant injury that required an operation. Uh, we paid to go through private treatment and it was incredibly costly for us. Uh, you know, I, 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 it was a significant amount of our budget. We wanted to do it because we felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, uh, we didn't have a requirement placed on us to do that. Um, but we we felt like this player had, you know, as part of her job, had become injured. And therefore, it was up to us to to, to support that player through it as quickly as we could. Um, Can I so just there interrupt are you there? Complicated that's, issues. It's really interesting you say that because there's no requirement for you to have done mm. her treatment. I mean, we had we had a a, a a player at the beginning of the season with, with exactly this question. That the fact that it's not a requirement for the club that somebody is professionally playing for to to then help them when they've sustained an injury playing for that club, working if you like, I just find that astounding. Mm. Yeah, I think it is. It's one of the 
areas, I think in some ways it is a bit of a gap um, from a player's perspective. And therefore you're trying to find the clubs that are going to, you know, support you through that. Um, it, it, it's uh, it, it's going to change a little bit more. There is now a scheme that the championship clubs will be signing up to, um, which will provide a little bit of extra support, financial support from the FA um, if we sign up to this scheme on medical support. So that would cut some of the costs, um, which means that clubs, I guess, will be incentivized to, to do what we did this season. Um, and that will certainly help us out to, to a degree. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to say it, but in the way, it, you know, it does come back down to that, that question around resourcing and finance and, uh, and how we build a sustainable model of uh, women's football. Yeah, you, you talked about how the current crisis presents an opportunity for the future. I mean, certainly that is something that, that clubs, I'm sure, will want to do, but the funding just perhaps isn't there. Um, let me just bring in uh, sports lawyer Liz Ellen again from La Vida Sports. Um, from your point of view, Liz, can you see this being something that players will start to come to you and say, right, I just want to push and via their agents, perhaps. I, I want this thing in my contract. I'm not going to be signing this contract without these provisions in there. Um, but you know, it's something that we would we'd always be happy to, to help players. And we've, we've actually provided a pro bono service uh, by Women in Football for, for many years to try and make sure that players do have access to these kind of... Um, uh, this, this advice and the, the opportunities again through, through their agents or, or directly. I think it, it's important for, for the discussion to be had. I think a lot of the time it's not the case that clubs are trying to be difficult. It's simply a case of um, we're talking about much smaller businesses than than we might give them credit for. You know, they they, they simply can't afford mm. um, the support that they might otherwise want to give. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be having the conversations. You should understand if it is feasible, if it's not feasible immediately, it might be feasible further down the line. Can it be a, you know, brought into your contract um, you know, at a later stage? I mean, look, the one beautiful thing about the women's game at the moment is it's changing so rapidly um, that you know, we, have, we have professional players, which, which is, is a recent thing. Um, and as more money comes into the game, hopefully through, through increased broadcast revenue, for example, then there will be opportunity. And I think if you if you were to to look at a player's contract now, I think it would look incredibly different in in five years' time. And I think that's um, that's something to be optimistic for within the women's game. These things will change, um, and it's important for for the players to to take the opportunity to um, make sure that they're involved in in what those changes look like and make sure they they you know, try and get involved in in shaping the things that are important to them. Yeah, that's 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 a crucial point because we had um, Amanda Vandervoort from FIFPro on earlier on, and she made exactly that point that players need to be at the table. They they're the people that these things affect, um, and the only way the game is going to progress and the future is going to look bright is if they tell everybody exactly what it is that that they want. Um, Katie Wyatt from The Telegraph, you, you interview players on a, on a regular ba- basis. What kind of things are they telling you that, that they want to, to improve these kind of conditions, improve their contracts, salaries, etc.? Um, I think it's a mix of things. I mean, to go back to the contract point that we were just discussing, um, I think it was about this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier, um, I did a piece actually on the lack of sort of private medical insurance for the WSL, and I believe that that's since come in 
in WSL contracts, I'm fairly sure. I, don't, I know it's a very different case from the Championship, but before it was, as Maggie has alluded to, just kind of left to the clubs as to whether they felt that they, they had like a moral obligation to fund um, med- um, uh, medical provision and things like that privately. And I think that's probably the chief concern with players, especially given the prevalence of ACL injuries, is that your rehab can end up taking twice as long if you're waiting six, seven, eight months for an operation. Um, so I think that's the chief issue that we, we hear. I think that the equal pay debate often gets blown out of proportion because you don't hear players in this country clamouring for equal pay. I think it's only in the US where there is um, a very clear case for equal pay for their women's team and a less of a gap between the amount of money that they're bringing compared to their male counterparts, where that kind of has real traction um in terms of other issues i think it's probably a little bit of the pay element comes into it in the sense of players being financially um recompensed fairly for their work that they do so it's not about equal pay but just the number of players that still have to take on dual careers or are still only earning kind of 15 to twenty thousand pounds a year which isn't enough necessarily depending on where they live in the uk to have a house or to get on the property ladder or to do whatever they want to do and whatever other people are doing at a similar stage of their lives and careers compared to them i think is is a big issue and a big worry um and i think as well just the I think we've talked about it a little bit in dual careers and and life after football. And I think that with players who are... Um, the game is just turning professional now. A lot of players are signing their first professional contract and it is a gamble because you are seeing that they're short contracts that maybe a year to two years. You're having clubs that are... We've seen a club furlough players already. We've had clubs that are going to cut back because of coronavirus. We see a lot of the time that clubs make big cuts to women's football. You don't know how stable the picture is, so you might be being asked to leave a very solid career in law or accountancy or whatever it is to have a gamble on seeing if you can have a football career for two years or seeing if you can make something out of an industry that's where you're going to last, your playing career is going to last until you're probably 37 at the longest. So I think it's things like that, that players are starting to have to make choices between their career outside of football and football specifically. And I think that for a lot of people, there's a great anxiety about the decision or there are certain things that they have to consider that maybe we're not used to thinking about because in men's football it's often just the case of you're brought through the academy you turn professional and the issue is with the people that don't make it whereas in women's football I think there's a lot of uh, considerations that players who are turning professional for the first time have to weigh up to decide if that's a change in their lives and their careers that they want to make. Mm, It'll be really really interesting to see if uh, Liz's prediction that women's players contracts in five years time will be significantly uh, different and hopefully for the better and hopefully Liz will speak to you in five years time we'll speak to you before that as well but in five years time as well and see whether that is the case thank you so much for joining us liz ellen sports lawyer and director of la vida sports there uh, we've been asking all of you today what now needs to improve in women's football a uh, couple more tweets in luke says a lot more investments needed that's come up a few times um and adam says quality of officiating is key the katie zellum handball very fresh in his mind you are listening to women's football weekly on talk Sport 2 with me, Faker Others, Maggie Murphy from Lewis FC and the Telegraph's Katie Wyatt. Next, it's all about the money and can women's football ever be a self-sustaining standalone product? Across the UK, online and on DAB Digital Radio. Oh, the momentum is with them now. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others. Actual Scott scores inside two minutes. On TalkSport 2. 
This is a Women's Football Weekly special on the future of the women's game with me, Faker Others, The Telegraph's Katie Wyatt and Lewis FC General Manager Maggie Murphy. You are listening to Talk Sport 2. So contracts need a lot of improvement, but there is a prediction uh, from Liz Ellen, sports lawyer, that in five years' time they will be vastly improved and that the future of women's football is bright. Today we've been asking you, what do you think needs to improve in women's football? A couple more tweets in for you. Emma says, I think we need to see more of the investment and revenue infiltrated back to clubs, especially to lower league clubs that deserve better facilities and infrastructure. And Dialeri says more women in high-level decision-making positions, including coaching, which is something that has come up quite a few times on this evening's special programme. Uh, now, money is obviously going to be a huge factor in the future of women's football. Obviously, COVID-19 has made an already challenging environment even harder. Um, Casey White from The Telegraph mentioned this uh, a short time ago. Reading have had to furlough uh, staff and AFC filed women's team uh, was disbanded as well. Um, Katie, not every club can provide staff and players financial support. What's the effect of this going to be on clubs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that we're probably going to see the knock-on effect even two, three, four years down the line because as we've had the announcement from the government the last few days that sports that don't run the risk of attracting huge crowds outside the stadium are potentially going to be able to play um, behind closed doors in the next few weeks and women's football, I imagine, would fall into that category because it doesn't attract the same sort of partisan following as you'll get in the men's game. So there's less of a risk of fans gathering outside stadiums and kind of clamouring to be left in and breaking sort social distancing rules as a result of that um, so I think that's going to be a big moment because I think Maggie will probably tell you the same as well that there are certain clubs that are very reliant particularly the lower end Super League clubs on gate receipts for um, uh, revenue and for their turnover and things like that and if you're saying to those clubs that they can't uh, use the furlough scheme anymore because their players are working but you're also saying to them that they've got to pay players but they're not having the income from the gates and then their secondary revenue streams from people buying burgers or beers or whatever it is then it's going to be very difficult for clubs that aren't kind of bankrolled by the big men's teams so the Man United's, the Arsenal's, the Chelsea's, the Man City's clubs outside of that elite group of four, five, six, seven teams are going to really, really struggle with potentially playing games behind closed doors and we may see a knock-on financial effect of that for two or three seasons, I think. Yeah, you touched on that, Maggie, at the, at the beginning, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that for uh, women's football, there's a couple of choices we make. One is what kind of women's football we want to support. Is it a kind of dependent model? Is it, you know, only big... Uh, rich men's clubs are able to have a viable women's club. Um, and then there's, you know, if you do think that actually football, women's football can be a viable product and, you know, here at Lewis, that's what we are creating. One that, you know, does rely on, on match day revenue because we think it's the right thing to do. And um, Katie, I think we will have quite a few fans outside clamouring if we do have to play behind closed doors. I'm not quite sure that we'll be able to afford the police protection. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a uh, if basically if we don't have normal match day revenue um, for women's football to survive, we need an alternative way of generating income. So, you know, I, I spoke about some of the opportunities that COVID presents to women's football. And one of those big opportunities would be a, a TV deal. Um, you know, there's lots of people that will be stuck at home, not allowed to go to games. So if and only if it's safe for football to come back and I have 
uh, huge reservations around having 20 players in a changing room uh, and the safety around them. Um, but if it's safe to come back, then there is a great opportunity to for broadcasters to be um, choosing to broadcast women's football in the WSL and the championship. Uh, and that allows us to create that revenue through the broadcast deal, but also to talk to sponsors who at the moment don't really want to talk to us because there's not much of a product for anyone to see. So there are some opportunities to um, allow women's football to generate income. Um, but, you know, again, the right people have to be in the right room and they have to be representing us in those discussions with the TV broadcasters. So that's that's the kind of question that we're looking at at the moment. When you say the right people in the room, who do you mean? Um, well, someone that represents the interests of women's football. So that could be the FA, um, who might be having those conversations with, with some of the broadcasters. But to be honest, I think you need a lot of diversity in the broadcasting room themselves, uh, you know, with the sponsors that might be talking about TV deals. Uh, at the moment, I feel like women's sport in general has suffered from the fact that if you have a not very diverse set of people uh, making the decisions, they choose to uh, broadcast a not very diverse set of sport. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important this talks a, a bit to the wider conversation around making sure that there's um, uh, channels of, you know, developing uh, channels for of opportunity for women to rise to the top across the sector. Mm. So I think, you know, but, but specifically on this, it would be great if there was a voice representing women's football in those conversations. Well, I certainly feel as if we could do an entire show on sponsors and broadcasters. <laughs> so that should be another women's football special coming up soon because there's so much to discuss with that. Just to wrap up, though, I just want to ask you both and short answers, if possible, to wrap up, does women's football have a bright future? Katie Wyatt from The Telegraph. I think it does if it makes the right decisions about the sport it wants to be and whether it wants to be, as Maggie was alluding to, self-sustaining or reliant on men's football and using those relationships to uh, kind of bankroll the product on the pitch, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Same question to you, Maggie. Well, 2021, so next year, that marks the 100th anniversary of the FA ban on women from taking part in football. Um, so I do think we've got this brilliant opportunity to right those wrongs. And, you know, this time the authorities need to show the full support for the women's game and, and for developing it so it can be, uh, so it can reach its full potential. And I think that's, um, you know, we need to start thinking about if not equal pay, then at least equal investment across the board and I think that then we're going to see a really bright future but it has to it, it's not easy to get there it's been really brilliant to have both of you on this evening thank you so much for your thoughts it's been it's been lively uh, we've certainly we've not answered enough questions I don't feel still so much to improve on the women's game but thank you both so much for for your input this evening and I hope to talk to you both soon thank you Faye. thank you Faye. Thanks to Maggie Murphy, the general manager at Lewis FC, the Telegraph's women's football reporter, Katie Wyatt, of course, Liz Ellen of Levida Sports and FIFA Pro's chief women's football officer, Amanda van der Voort. Remember, if you've missed any of Women's Football Weekly, you can stay up to date. We have a podcast now. We're available to download on Spotify and Apple products and spread the word as well because Women's Football Weekly is here every Monday, 6 till 7 on TalkSport 2. Across the UK, online and on DAB digital radio. Oh, the momentum is with them now. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others. Angel Scott scores inside two minutes. On TalkSport 2. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.